Welcome to Inflection Point Podcast, where our mantra is cultivating change from the inside out. Join your hosts, Anita Russell, Mavis Bauman, and Gail Hunter, as we create a brave space for conversations about racism, personal transformation, and accountability. Conversation provides a means to dive deeply into your thoughts, ideas, and beliefs, and examine what emerges in your words, actions, and behaviors. The show is a journey towards anti-racism by cultivating change within yourself first and then out into the world. Learn to engage in racial dialogue using four tools, courage, conversation, relationship, and accountability. Discover how truth, reconciliation, and healing can emerge from honest and deliberate conversations. Manifest social change right now on Inflection Point Podcast. Here again to uh, talk tonight about our year in review. Really, we've uh, already had more than a year's worth of shows, and um, we have all learned so much. We've shared so much, and it's um, pretty exciting to think about how far we've come. I was just looking over some of my typewritten notes from earlier on, and. Uh, Boy, we have come a distance, haven't we, Gail? <laughs> we really have. It's amazing. Yeah. Hi, my name is Gail Hunter, and uh, welcome to this, and Happy New Year. Um, but we have come a long ways. When looking back over everything that we've covered, it's amazing, right? Right. I'm sorry, I didn't introduce myself. I'm Mavis Bauman. I'm used to Anita doing that. She must be having some technical yes. problems. Yes, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year. So I think what we're going to be doing tonight, and Anita does this so well, um, she uh, was is going to direct us in talking about what uh, parts of our work together have been most impactful, what kind of transformational moments we had over the last year, and uh, some special parts about being Black globally. So Anita, can I toss it back to you? Yes, I apologize for my technical difficulty <laughs> that I'm having. And I thank you, Mavis, for jumping in because I don't know if that's going to happen again, to be quite frank. Well, we'll, we'll cover it. Um, so it sounds like you did our intro and all of that and talked about uh, the, the, the fact that this is a little bit different. We've done a recap in the past. And in the past, we kind of went back and looked at specific episodes. But for this one, we want to make it a little bit more personal personal and really talk about what this year has been like for each one of us as individuals and what has been the most impactful um, piece or part of us doing this, um, doing the podcast. So why don't we just start that conversation? Uh, we talked uh, earlier today, we were talking about some of those things. So Mavis, what is one thing that was really impactful or powerful or really meaningful for you that maybe something you learned or experienced that was new for you? There's almost too many to list, but I think to start off, I need to say that I had no idea of my role in our racialized society. And that has been so 
enlightening every piece that we've worked on from every part of society, whether it's determinants of health or certain industries like farming, I am seeing what really pulling back the veil of our racialized society. And um, it's it's been fascinating. I had no idea that so many people were really living in a different world from mine. I had no idea. And what I've heard uh, uh, quite a few times lately is I didn't have to pay attention. I really didn't have to pay attention as a white person to what was happening. And now I'm paying full on attention. And I find it fascinating, exciting, and motivating to act against racism in our world. Excellent. Excellent. So what about you, Gail? And there, I, I agree with Mavis. There's so many different things that I have learned over the last year. I and mean, I thought I knew an awful lot, right? From studying, doing Black Studies in 1970, to, or when, when, whenever it was when I was in college, to um, everything else that I've experienced in my lifetime. But I have to say that I was really astounded when I we started doing the historical literacy as far as the um, content of what really was going on after the, after the Civil War was quote one, and um, how the the federal government really did not really step in and do anything for the southern states that were still finding different ways through the black codes and so forth to continue slavery, just a different form of it. Um, and then also the redlining through the 1930s and so forth, and how that was the federal government behind all that, that made it impossible for anyone that was Black to be able to get a mortgage, to be able to buy a house, to create that um, continual longevity of, of, of attaining more wealth. Um, they made it absolutely impossible. And then on and on, there's so many other things I can add to that. But that was probably the biggest conscious awareness that I had that I was not, I thought I was clear on. And I was not clear on it at all. And so I am grateful for the um, for the information and the knowledge and the wisdom that comes from that. Yeah. Excellent. So uh, one of the things that really hit home for me, not necessarily in a personal kind of way, but mm -hmm. in this way that kind of broadened my scope of understanding how pervasive racism actually is, and that is when we had the two gen. Well, actually, we had three people. We had the two gentlemen from the Navy, and then we also had um, a woman that was a, a military spouse. And so, what was interesting for me is, like, I know a lot of the history, and I know, you know, the black GIs coming back from wars, and you know, they they were in, say, Europe fighting for freedom and in the name of freedom and liberty and all of that, and then they came back here, and this is, you know, and racism just basically uh, hit them right in the face. Mm -hmm. But that, so I knew those things historically. But I, this was the first time I ever really sat down and had a conversation with two retired military uh, naval officers, one black, one white, and they were able to sit down and really talk about how different the experiences were between the two of them. So these were two individuals who, you know, they're retired naval officers. They didn't serve together while they were in the Navy. Um, the, the, the black gentleman, his name is uh, Reuben Keith Green, and he wrote a book. And when he wrote that book, the other gentleman uh, by the name of uh, Dr. John Cordell read that book. Mm 
And when he read that book, the two of them kind of came together with this understanding that John's experience in the same Navy was extremely different from Ruben's experience in the Navy. And one of the ways that John described it is that he saw his naval career as uh, as sort of a marathon or, you know, I'm, I'm just running a, a relay race, uh, so to speak. Whereas once he read um, uh, Keith's book, what he began to see was that his experience was more was more like an obstacle course. And so if you could think of, you know, a person who is uh, running a, a race, you know, just a short race versus somebody who is on that same kind of course, but it's an obstacle course. And so that really kind of spoke volumes for me because this was coming from a white man who served in, in the military and was able to acknowledge that his experience was very different from what uh, Ruben was explaining. So that really just kind of hit home for me again, because it, it broadened my scope of knowledge on that because now I'm listening to somebody's lived experience. And their experience with each other is so yeah. unique, so encouraging. Mm -hmm. They were completely honest and locking arms in this process. And okay. I just love seeing that, how supportive they were of each other. And they're yeah, empathic with, you, with each other. They're very, mm -hmm. the compassion was there and the empathy was there, that they really heard each other, right? And, and right. that was really pretty remarkable. Right, mm -hmm. right. And so there were others, like, for example, when we, uh, when we had the conversation with uh, Rebecca from mm -hmm. Switzerland. Right. That was a very eye-opening conversation as well, primarily because if you didn't know she was from Switzerland and you just read her stories, you could easily assume that she was American. Mm -hmm. And so that whole idea of looking at a lot of our topics through the lens of being Black globally really, really kind of hit home for me right. when we had the conversation with her and, and, and in particular, if you remember how she shared um, that she didn't know she was black because she was raised in uh, Sierra Leone. Yes, yeah, Sierra Leone. Sierra Thank Leone. you. She was raised in Sierra Leone, like her whole life, her family mm -hmm. and, and all of that. And then at the age of nine is when they moved to uh, Switzerland. Mm -hmm. And so you're going from this black nation into this white nation. And it was quite an eye opener for her as a little girl, a nine year old uh, kid who's now being told and defined by something that she had never been defined by before. So it was really interesting that experience um, as well. Yeah, that that for me was uh, a transformational moment. Um, sometimes it's the simplest things that really jar your thinking. When she said, I didn't know I was black until I was nine, that was one of those brain-breaking things. Like, how could she not know? And it's yeah. because of this construct right. that we have built, the construct of race. Mm -hmm. And um, I, will, I will never forget that. I will never forget that, how, how we have established these um, separations from each other that are purely mm -hmm. invented. Right. And so Absolutely. she experienced her first nine years without 
any of that racist bias and and bullying until she got there um, to Switzerland. And then it started, which is sad. I mean, it's just so sad that she had to then encounter that and experience that. Um, And, you know, it's just it's just another example of white supremacy and racism now exists globally. Yeah, that is a, exactly because it's a global phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's think back to um, just two weeks ago when we talked to uh, Pangasili Machali, a uh, mm-hmm. South African, uh, she's a friend of, well, now she's a friend of all three of us, mm-hmm. um, but she is a South African farmer and she's been associated with farming since like the, the age of seven and all of that she works um she works in corporate philanthropy as her job but she's also a farmer and so just looking at the plight of south african farmers mm-hmm. versus the plight of black farmers it's exactly the same plight it's fighting over land land being literally taken from people right rules and regulations being set up laws and legislation being set up to control where people can live where they can work where they can grow how is that in south africa under apartheid any different from jim crow redlining segregation all of that so to gail's point it's exactly the same story that's right that's right way to exclude separate um take the wealth from steal right steal the property and that's exactly what what yeah let's call it what it is Uh, yeah i mean and that's not that different than when uh the pilgrims who ever came to the united states they stole the land from the native americans in the same way Mm -hmm. right but then you also when you know that and you see that it lets you know how mm-hmm. powerful the land is. Yeah. That land is power, and right? Money. It's power. Mm-hmm. And those who control the land mm-hmm. control the power. Well, and there's a similarity even after they change that they try to give back land to, to the African um, population that they literally removed from the land that they had before. But they never equipped them with education or with tools or equipment. Mm-hmm. And they couldn't compete with the white farmers who were doing commercialized farming. And yeah. so it was a setup for them to fail. The government set that up that way. I mean, it's not, it's not that different than what was happening here in America. Exactly. Exactly. And, and that's a good point that you're bringing up. The subsistence farming versus uh, commercial farming, right? right. So while there are so many wealthy uh, individuals in South Africa specifically, mm-hmm. And then, you know, you think about the United States and commercial farming in the United States. But the problem with commercial farming is that it's about making profit. It's not really about feeding people, which is the reason why we have commercial farming in the United States. But we have people who are starving. There's commercial farming in South Africa, but there are people who are starving. Mm -hmm. And so that like, how do you? rationalize that you you i mean you can because of your mindset you have a certain mindset where you know you're looking at things through the lens of capitalism you're looking at things through the lens of white supremacy and you know all of those types of things 
And but when you pull that veil back, you can see how it poisons us. Mm-hmm. Everybody. It actually poisons everybody. You're right, Mavis. Yeah. It poisons all of us. Yeah, to even think the that ones, even there's... the people that can't see it is still poisoning them. Exactly. Can't see it. Exactly. Yeah. And so let's know, oh I'm sorry. Go just ahead. Since we were on South Africa a little bit, I was just gonna add the um idea that apartheid in South Africa is this you know the same expression of Jim Crow here in the United States. But you know, when apartheid was like in the early 90s, I was one of the Americans who thought this is horrible. How can they do this? Not noticing that there's no one black in my neighborhood. <laughs> I mean that and I lived in you know Omaha. It was still very segregated mm-hmm. and and that you know i think i think in a lot of ways there's there's not a specific intention there it's just this society that we're raised in and how we're programmed to uh n- not grab something as our responsibility it just is and so what can i do about it but to but- see now <laughs> Mm-hmm. What I, I should have noticed then, it's, um, it's very humbling. It's right. Good. So good. looking at that same type of experience for me in the 90s, what I saw was hypocrisy. Like, how can you be mad at the South Africans because they have a system of apartheid when we have these systems right here in the United States? Right. And so that was what I saw. These people, mm-hmm. white folks, you know, raising like, no, you know, anti-apartheid mm-hmm. movement and everything like that. Anti-apartheid should be no different than what we're doing here in terms of anti-racism. So it felt like hypocrisy, right? Right. Yeah. So for me, that was what I saw. It's, it's, and that's not to say that I didn't want apartheid to go away. Right, um, right. Yes, but I also want the things that impact my life in the United States that are in the same category to go away as well. Right. You know, exactly. so... Exactly. It was a lot of fighting and a lot of, you know, sanctions and all kinds of things like that. We don't san- sanction ourselves when it yeah. comes to the atrocities yeah. here in the United States. Right. We just don't do that. We don't. There's a lot we yeah. don't do here. Yeah. As a, so let's kind of take that point and, and, and move mm-hmm. on a little bit to talking about the topic of racial literacy. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that's kind of associated with racial literacy is really just having a fundamental skill and being able to really look at the existence of racism. So in order for you to look at the existence of racism, you first have to acknowledge that racism is, in fact, a real thing, right? And then examining the effects of racism, institutionalized systems, and. Oh, dear. I think she froze again. We, we lost her a little bit again. So we have to be able to recognize um, the reality of what has been as far as the institutions, as far as the historical information that is out there to, to really, truly understand it. Um, because without that truth, we're just going to continue the same behavioral patterns, the same belief systems, whether you're conscious of them or not. They're right. there. Exactly. The generational there. patterning is there. Yes. Right? 
I, do you think it'd be okay, Gail, if I just went ahead and read this yeah. quote that Anita yeah, had uh, yeah. for us? Um, with respect to racial literacy, mm -hmm. uh, there's a concept developed by sociologist France Windens Twine, uh, UC Santa, Santa Barbara Department of Sociology. She describes racial literacy as a form of racial socialization. I'm just mm -hmm. reading this quote, Anita. <laughs> and anti-racist training that parents of African descent children practiced in their efforts to defend their children against racism, uh, end quote, in her research done in the United Kingdom with mixed-raced families. Uh, did you want to comment on that first part of the quote, or should I continue? I can't hear you. You're muted now, girl. Yeah, I definitely want to respond to that. Um, and I apologize. I don't know what's going on. I'm having some technical thing here. But when I read that, mm -hmm. it just really occurred to me that that's what we're doing is we're passing along racial literacy to our children. And we're doing that as a defense mechanism. We're doing that because we need to tell, like I have my two-year-old grandson, Cairo, but I also have a 14-year-old grandson, uh, Zane, and eventually we're going to be sitting down and having these conversations, particularly with Zane, because he's like, what, two years away from wanting to have a driver's license. And I can tell you in my own being, the idea of him having a driver's license as a 16, 17 year old is almost horrifying to me. And the things that we will have to teach them, teach him that we teach on a regular basis, the talk. Like you've heard us refer to this, the top. Mm -hmm. you, there's that point where you have to sit down and you have to explain to your children, this is how the world operates. And so that is racial literacy because we're teaching them, this is how this system works. And this is how you need to learn how to protect yourself to the greatest extent that you can in order to be able to survive. In, in, in this country. A another thing that kind of popped into my mind, and then I'm going to stop and let uh, someone else talk. But the other thing that popped into my mind is when I think about the Green Book, right? Mm -hmm. That book that we used to produce when we were traveling, you had mm -hmm. this Green Book. So you know, this is a sundown town. Don't go there. These people over here, they're good. They don't mind Black folks. That's another mm -hmm. example of this racial literacy mm -hmm in terms mm -hmm. of how Dr. Twine defined it. So these are things that we have to do. We have to be literate in racial uh, practices, laws, and all of that in order for us to be, even be able to get up and walk out the door on a daily basis. And be safe. Yeah. And be safe. So, Anita, this, is, this does not refer to any um, uh, racial socialization of white children then white families are not talking no racial have that right i would exactly. not have that conversation with my kids you know i had other conversations but not, not the that same conversation. yeah so different conversations right that's kind of interesting to think about what those how those two conversations would be so radically different right. i think mine the things that i heard were be afraid be very afraid of black people you know, that was that was all that I heard. It wasn't something that went on and, and on. You have to even position your hands and I mean everything that that white teenagers and on and adults don't even think about. 
yeah. if it's like yeah. cold water it's that, eating or something, right? It's that different. I never had to watch my body yeah. language or anything, right? You didn't have to fear for your life. No, uh, that, no, no, not in my white bread neighborhood. <laughs> right. I read an article the other day too, and it was about the whole thing with uh, flight, fight, or freeze. Mm -hmm. We don't even get to have that. Think about it. Mm -hmm. We don't get to have that. Like when I think, for example, Antoine Rose was a, mm -hmm. you remember Antoine Rose, uh, Gail, who was murdered, yeah. a murder team. He ran because he was afraid right. and he got shot down. He wasn't <laughs> running because he was doing anything. He was running because he was afraid. So we don't even get to be mm -hmm. like fully in something that is naturally occurring for people. Fight, flight, or freeze. Right. It's our brain it's how it operates. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. So we're mm -hmm. we're denied that as well. And I can tell you that when you activate that part of that bra the brain, the amygdala, it's really hard to have to overdrive that. And that's what you're describing has to be done. Yeah. Right. That's exactly what it is. They can't even go into freeze mode, right? They can't even just be still because they have to be able to communicate in a way that is not going to cause any possible risk of harm. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So we have about three minutes until we're going to go to uh, break. So Gail uh, or either one of you, Mavis or Gail, if you could read that second block, just in case I get knocked out again <laughs> okay go ahead gail <laughs> okay the, the second one is a skill and practice by which individuals can probe the existence of racism and examine the effects of race and institutionalized systems on their experiences and representation in united states society again that's yes, racial so if you can literacy. continue and read that next block the next one, becoming racially literate requires that as educators humans we can this is what we all can do Engage with the emotional content of any conversation that has a focus on race. We can welcome personal narratives and the lived experiences of all who are involved in race conversations. We can talk confidently about our own racial identities. Feel confident in creating and engaging in healthy and reciprocal cross-racial relationships. And challenge racism at the individual, group, and systemic level. So when you think about what you just read, that's racism, anti-racism activation. Okay. It's being able to do those things. So you can see the connection between what we describe as anti-racism activation and racial literacy. Right? right? Mm -hmm. And we all can participate. If you think about what are our four, our four things, right. courage, conversation, relationship, accountability. accountability. It's embedded in those bullet right. points right there. Right. And that is when we can each choose that, we begin to change our belief systems. And that's what's going to change this from the inside out, right? Our internal belief systems must change individually for it to change collectively and globally. Absolutely. start from within each of us. Absolutely. And so when I think about all of these things, we have about another minute. So let me just make mm -hmm. this yeah. point before we go. Um, when I think about what we've been doing, as I lay it up against this content here and this mm -hmm. information, it makes me feel really gratified mm -hmm. with what it is we're doing, the direction mm -hmm. that we're going in. Even though if you think back in the beginning, I was just kind of making everything up <laughs> as I went along. But as <laughs> I went along and things got more solid, yeah. 
Yeah. And I got more well-versed in certain topics. Like when we did social determinants of health right. and all of those types of things, the picture began to emerge that yes. what Inflection Point Podcast is really all about is mm-hmm. increasing and improving historical and racial literacy. That's right. Exactly. Yes. Good point. So I think at this point, we'll take a break. You can't just fix yourself on the outside and expect the inside to follow. Whether you're 5 or 85, healthy living can begin whenever you decide you want a better life. Tune into Keeping Up with Barbara Scheidegger every month on TransformationTalkRadio.com to learn about implementing a daily routine and finding a balance to improve your life. Learn to live agelessly. Go to BarbaraScheidegger.com. That's Barbara, S-C-H-E-I-D-E-G-G-E-R.com. Are you ready to put down that drink or drug for good? Are you struggling to maintain your recovery from addictive behaviors? Do you need help with a family member or loved one who's in early recovery or battling addiction? Get the help and guidance you need by arranging a recovery recharged phone session with me, Ellen Stewart, Pushy Broad from the Bronx, Certified Life and Recovery Coach. Call 1-800-889-1757. Make an appointment today. Or go to my website, pushybroadfromthebronx.com, and click on the link that says Recovery Recharged. Don't wait. Get the help you need today. This is Ellen Stewart, Pushy Broad from the Bronx, on transformationtalkradio.com. Tune in to No More Rules, the impact of being you, the first and third Monday, 8 a.m. Pacific, every month on TransformationTalkRadio.com with hosts Steph Yost and Camille Barreto. And join the movement to awaken your inner power, be the creator of your own healthy life, as they help shift perceptions, encourage thinking outside the box, and overcome limiting behaviors and beliefs. Listen to thought-provoking conversations and visit YourImpactWellness.com to schedule your consultation today. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, You are listening to Inflection Point Podcast on Transformation Talk Radio, and we are discussing the need for historical and racial literacy and how that has uh, informed our podcast here. And we think you're just going to really fall into this with us because it really changes how you look at our society, our racialized society. So, Anita, you want to take it from here? Yeah. So uh, speaking of historical literacy, I'm going to share with you a little bit about when I got my master's degree, right? So I have a master's degree in educational leadership because I was really interested in how do you design programs and, and educational things that actually work for people, right? And one of the things that I did in my study is whenever I was looking at differences like educational disparities, instead of focusing on the African-American community, because I already knew a lot about that, I made a choice to focus on the Native American 
uh, community. And so that opened up my eyes quite a bit in understanding what are those atrocities that had been perpetrated against that population of people, right? But one of the other things that really stood out for me is that was the time when I got um, exposed to Paulo Freire. If you've read his book, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, that book really just opened up my mind to such an incredible extent. And when I was putting some of this stuff together and looking at this concept of historical literacy and what good is literacy, this is something that he said that really ties into some things that we've been saying lately as well. Looking at the past must only be a means of understanding more clearly what and who you are so you can build the future more wisely. Isn't that what we talk about when we mm -hmm. say um, the past informs the present in order for us to empower a better future? Right. It's the same kind of concept. That's how I think of the role of historical uh, literacy and what historical literacy means. It means having that understanding of history. How does it work? How does it connect to me? How does something that happened in 1619 connect to Anita Russell and connect to our current situation? Your thoughts? Well, if we don't allow ourselves to learn history, we won't learn from it. We will continue to repeat the same patterns. And that's been proven over and over again in many different cultures and, and countries and so forth. And so it's crucial for us to, to change. In fact, even in my own personal life, if I don't look at my life from birth on and really look at what was going on, what choices have I made, what is it that helped me and what hurt me, what nurtured me, I'm never going to be able to work in the present to change those patterns and my beliefs about myself in a way that can actually allow the future to transpire in a very different way, right? And so you can take it at looking at it at the individual level, at a, at a community level, at a, at a state level, an entire nation level, and globally, that we all have responsibility to ourselves and to our own history to understand and to know it and to learn it. And that includes our racial and racist history. Yeah, very important. What's amazing is that there's so many, there's a movement that wants to ban any um, any information around systemic racism, right, in the, in the school districts. <clears throat> it's already bad enough that I, <clears throat> when I went through school, so much was already eliminated, right, and omitted, that to omit and eliminate, continue to do that. We are never going to learn as a, as from one generation to the next until we're willing to step into that place of truth and really learn what the truth really has been. And mm -hmm. then we can begin to look at the sea within ourselves and to make those changes. It's mm -hmm. crucial. And to acknowledge- and That's why I look at the work that we do mm -hmm. and other organizations, <clears throat> Long Talk as an example, right. or so many other organizations, some of the people that um, are part of the summit that we have mm -hmm. uh, coming up, the whole entire thing of we need to take a stand to create this uh, movement, this grassroots kind of movement so that we can continually just push forward, just keep pushing the envelope, just keep pushing the envelope. And I think one of the things that's really powerful now is this whole idea 
of dialoguing, of having conversations. Robert Livingston's book, The Harvard University Professor, that mm -hmm. book is amazing. And that book has been a guide for me in terms of how do we sit down and have these conversations because they need to be had individually, person to person like this. Yes. Right? That's right. Yes. Yes. I, I don't know what I would have done without the two of you. Um, I, I never thought about my identity. Um, I never thought that much about the historical factors of racism. I thought it in terms of today and how that impacts people, but in a very superficial way. So getting into the history has really helped me uncover how those wounds are carried forward and how we really need to understand how those wounds impact the identity of others. That to me has been so powerful, you know, especially kind of prepares me for a spot response to, well, slavery was so long ago. Can't we just move on? Um, and now I get the connection. I get the, um, the huge, uh, a cast of characters in a way that have perpetrated, uh, uh, you know, this suffering on people of color, you know, white people, basically. And, um, you know, without really acknowledging that, that my identity is white and how that affected the information that came to me. I don't know. I, I am thrilled to have access to this now because a while back when someone said, what would you do? I had nothing. <laughs> I had no idea what to do. Now, now I can see. Now I can see and I can act. Yeah. yeah. And you guys have been so, so patient with me. Break my brain, right? <laughs> <laughs> but that's and the thing. We all have to be willing to step into the conversation yeah. to have our brains broken. Exactly. Because if our brains are not broken, um, and I say that metaphorically, but right. if our brains are not broken, we can't really move beyond our own right. thinking. Because that's really what breaking your brain is. It's, mm -hmm. it's collapsing this way of thinking and replacing it with another way mm -hmm. of right. thinking, right? And that's what these conversations are all about. And it's and white folks whose brains really need to be broken. Right. And, and some of these things exactly. that we mentioned here with the historical literacy and the racial literacy, white folks need that. Exactly. I was color have always say, been. Yeah, it so it takes that, I'm sorry, Gail, the, the information of historical and racial literacy to build up that new thinking. It's not like you can just replace our old thinking. It's, it's yeah. very stubborn. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it doesn't want to go away. And, uh, you know, we want to let our feelings get hurt and push people away and not learn. But no, going to the history, uh, going into um, the lived experience of people is it's critical to understanding. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Gail, you were about to say something. I was saying that uh, people of color have always had that knowing that because they lived the experience. It's white people that must begin to take a look in that mirror within themselves and be honest with themselves because we won't change anything unless it's based on truth. And there are blatant truths that that have been you know thrown under the rug and, and not wanted to be looked at and seen that occurred in the beginning and that they're still 
underlying everything and white supremacy today. And so we have to be willing to look at that and all this is within ourselves and within us as a as a white race, right? And how and what we have chosen over centuries. Exactly. Exactly. Um, if I could just comment about um the the work I'm doing in Rwanda, my organization organization is called seed a better life and a lot of what we talk about here causes me to refer back to that work because of the distinctions between an ethnic group ethnic groups or racial groups is just deadly it can go to such a degree that we would we would think we would never participate in but it has happened on every continent on this planet. And so, you know, Rwanda has taught me a lot in that sense. Um, we just have to very simply honor each other as human beings. Mm -hmm. Which is the Ubuntu philosophy. Yes. 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 I am because you are. Yes. The yes. whole entire thing mm -hmm. that says, I can't even be human without you mm. because every single person that is born into the, this world i look at cairo he's learning mm -hmm. what it is to be human by exactly. observing us and interacting yes. with us so how would he possibly be able to do that if he didn't have us you know what i mean it, and, yes. and so that's what i love about that principle because we can't be human by ourselves exactly we no, just can't human, be human humans, by ourselves connection Right, we're about relationships and connecting, and we learn through that. We thrive from that, right? From the time we're born on. Absolutely, absolutely. So, go ahead, Gail. Uh, uh, Mavis. I'm sorry. <laughs> All these thoughts are coming <clears throat> up. Listening to mm -hmm. the lived experiences mm -hmm. of, uh, you know, our our black participants in the podcast, and certainly you, Anita, for years. Um. It's just different than anything you can read or um, as as these fine ladies tried to teach me early on to absorb intellectually. It's it's the lived experiences of people that you're you're with staring into their eyes and really hearing and hearing and feeling their pain and and opening your heart to understand it. That's how to make progress i think yes yeah definitely we all, must, we all have the capacity to do that and we all can step into that place of hoping to do that yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And, and, and that's one of the beautiful things about the three of us mm -hmm. i always look at the work that we are doing and how far we've come mm -hmm. just in our own ability to have conversations mm -hmm. Right. And I can honestly say that even in the times when we were having some tough conversations, I never had the experience that either one of you was kind of dismissing anything that I said. It was usually the opposite. Like, can you tell me more? What 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 does that mean? Tell I need to know what that means. And even like with you, Mavis, some of the times when I told you don't intellectualize it, just just let it go, let just let it go in. Just let it go in. Be a long time. Really, yeah, yeah, but <laughs> but look at but look at your progress. Yeah. yeah I can right? feel look the at progress. your progress. 
Yeah. Right. A year ago, would you have been able to talk the way that you're talking right now? Oh, Oh, no. Oh, no. And, you know, my my goal is to be able to talk like this with other white people so that they hear and feel. And uh, I I really want to get there. I really want to gain those Mm -hmm. skills because it's our responsibility to attack this head on. You know, as I always tell you, it's not our responsibility to change people. People have to be willing. Good point. Good point. No one can change another. Only self can change self. Exactly. Mm. People have to make that choice. I mean, it's just like Mm. being saved when you decide you want to accept Christ. (laughs) You can't, your mom can't accept Christ for you. You have to get to that point where that's something that you are moved to Mm. do. And this Mm. is not that different from that. It's like you just wake up one day and make a choice that says, I really want to get out from under the thumb of racism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because it's oppressing that as a white person. People. It's right. oppressing everybody. It's affecting everyone, even when they don't see it or know it. Yeah. 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 Another analogy that's really helped me is um, that racism is not the shark. It is the water we all swim in. Yes, so if you right. think about swimming in water, certainly if you're a fish, you're not thinking about the water. And I was completely guilty of that, you know, for so long. I was just swimming in the water of this you know, racialized society. And, and things like that helped me break away from uh, what probably wants to be defensiveness in me. Yes. You know, yes. I think I'm such a nice person, but that ain't no good. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's not enough. Yeah. yeah. So that's been really helpful. Those, those analogies mm-hmm. and your coin. Well, analogy. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the part about being defensive because that's where a lot of white people go. When you hear people say, well, what about like we were yep. talking earlier and you were tra- saying that you were sharing something about the plight of black farmers with a white gentleman mm-hmm. and his right. response was, what about white farmers? It's like, yeah. okay, the white farmers own what, like 85 to 90% right. of the land? Like, well, what about the white farmers? It's just kind of funny sometimes when people yeah. respond that way. And it just lets you know mm-hmm. that they're, neither their historical or their racial mm-hmm. literacy is very sharp. Right. And he probably suffered, you know, in a number of ways as a small farmer, which is where I was mm-hmm. trying to take the conversation. But the reaction was really, really strong. And it, and it surprised me. It shouldn't, but it did. <laughs> yeah. But he also, whatever his suffering was as a farmer, it wasn't because he was a white guy. It wasn't because oh, of, right. yeah. Yeah, it wasn't because of his skin color. Yeah. No, exactly. And that, yeah. I think that's the part that a, people have a lot yes. of tr- understanding like right. I, I understand that you suffered in your life i i, I get that but you're yeah. whatever the suffering that you had it wasn't because you were a white person mm-hmm. yes yeah. yes exactly boy that's a hard one to get i think it you know just oh, that's a crucial place. Place. i've pulled myself up by my bootstraps we don't ever want to hear that expression but you know that kind of suffering is so completely different from right. the color of my skin i have to think about when i walk out my door right i right. know that you're just being judged by the color of your skin i mean it's just yeah it's almost 
Yeah. So, awesome. it's just, it, the whole it's concept absurd. of it is just Yes, it's absurd. You know? And yet it's so real. It's been so real. Well, and who was it that said it, racism is insanity? Was it? Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't remember who that, yeah, that, right, that quote yeah, did come from. It yeah. is. I, I don't remember where it came from. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, because it's, it's just made up stuff. Well, it's based mm-hmm. on a lie that was based on trying to cover up the reality of what was going on with right, right. Plays were coming but can you it. imagine? Can you imagine? Like, let's take it this big thing and bring it down to something really, really small. Can you imagine if you were just a person going along in your life, mm-hmm. and you woke up one day and found out, realized? that everything that you have been taught about your life, your family was a lie. Right. You see, cause you think about how tied up your identity is in yeah. your, in your, whatever yeah. that social system is that you're living in. It's what we were talking about earlier with the relationships. We're all human. So we're, we live in these social little communities and and all of that so what happens if you wake up one day and find out that everything about the people that were in your community is built on a lie Mm -hmm. that's a tough thing to wrap your mind Mm -hmm. around right and that's exactly what's happening right now with all of these conversations about uh racism because white people are waking up and well i don't know if they're waking up or they're waking. being bombarded, if you will, right. yeah. more and more information. I, like I can say in this time period, I don't remember any other time period was this much information was being produced right. around the topic mm-hmm. of racism. In every form of media, conversations, movies, right. Right. yeah, right. books, everything. Well, because of the media, because in the 60s, 70s, when there was so much protesting going on, that people knew, but they didn't. They didn't live with it day to day. It wasn't right. in their face with the me- as the media is now. That they were exactly. seeing it, and hearing it, and, exactly. right as it was happening. Yeah, and and plus, there's less control now. We were talking the other right. day about the idea. When you think about the murder of George Floyd, people were videotaping. Right. They all had phones. We didn't have that in the 60s oh. and the 70s. So we were like one of the uh, Dr. King, I think it was Dr. King's, one of his strategies was to when when they were being attacked by the dogs and everything, their strategy was to get the media to come there and cover exactly. what was happening there. Mm-hmm. Now you don't have to do that. You don't have to get, you don't have to no. call, you know, some newswire agency, blah, 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 blah. You just call your neighbors, right. you know, call your friends, you know, right. and, and all of that, because mm-hmm. we have so much at our fingertips now, so much information in spite mm-hmm. of the misinformation and the false conspiracies and all that junk that's out there. We have a valuable tool in mm-hmm. our hands now that we didn't have in the sixties and seventies. Yeah. You know, the whole murder of George Floyd. I mean, that, if that had been, that wasn't, that was the first time that ever happened. But it was the first time that the mass of public saw it live happening, right? Right, exactly. And the look on Chauvin's face, oh, that's no. what got to me. I know young black men have been killed oh. for centuries, 
But the look on his face, not even like he was squishing a bug. No. You know, there was no emotion in that face. And I, how do you get there? Yeah, it it just, um, Mm -hmm. you know, it's sickening. Sickening. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, And so us being able to see and witness all of that mm-hmm. is was like a big difference in when you think about the 60s and the 70s and even going into the 80s it was just different you know and i often think to myself cuz now you can pick up your phone and you get the news and it'll be you know like i'm in brooklyn and you know there was a robbery over there and there was a robbery down the not literally down the street from where i am but I think also a difference is the volume. So I don't, I don't, can I say that crime is actually more from a statistical perspective? Is it increased more or is it just that we're exposed to it more? Like you could have your phone on the local news in Sparta and every single crime that happens in Sparta shows Mm -hmm. up on your phone. But does that mean there's more crime in 2023 or 2022 than there was in 1997? Yeah, it's captured now. It's captured, right. It's captured. Mm -hmm. And everybody has access to it. Everybody has access to it. And so that's why, you know, when I hear people arguing about the, you know, the crime rate, and you know things are more violent well are we really more violent or mm. are we just more aware exactly of more violence? maybe well, the statistics would hold out and saying that there actually is an increase but my guess is just as you're saying it's it's that we're just more consciously aware yeah exactly. i don't know if this this is uh correct um but it seems to me that then these videos become part of our racial literacy Absolutely. Absolutely. That is like nothing you could read. Anybody who wrote that story would have a spin. Right. Right. You know, so yeah, I want, you know, we want the truth, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So Mm -hmm. we are literally almost out of time. We have about another two, three minutes or so. Um, So before we go, I want to call out the first annual anti-racism activation summit that is commencing uh next week it starts uh, january the 9th uh through the 13th so it's 15 speakers in five days and basically it's a group of speakers that come together they're experts in um in various fields but they the one thing that we all have in common is that uh we share a story of how the murder of George Floyd impacted us, impacted us not just personally, but in terms of the work that we decided to do. So what was that work that grew out of, you know, from an anti-racism activation uh, perspective? So I'd like everybody who is listening to go over to uh, the place to soar.com. And as soon as you get there, there's information there on the summit. Um, as I said, it starts the ninth, you must be registered to attend, and registration actually closes on Friday, uh, Friday night. So get over there, get registered. Oh, the place store.com. Mavis Gale, what do you want to call out real quick? Go ahead, Mavis. Uh, I'm excited. <laughs> I'm excited about this summit. I really want to encourage people because 
the people who are speaking, aside from the three of us, <laughs> or in addition to, are so extraordinary. It's different walks of life, different approaches. This is the kind of creative input I think all of us need. When you hear what people are actually doing, it might spark something in you. So again, go to Anita's organization website, theplacetosoar.com, right? <laughs> yeah, and that's it. And, and, and don't, don't, convince yourself, don't convince yourself that you can't be there for that time because it's recorded. And so you have access to, to exactly really listening to it at a different time period. You can, it's very Absolutely. flexible, three lectures a day or uh, um, speeches a day, and uh, you can watch them at your leisure. Yeah. And it's free. Right. Who can say it's no? Free. Yeah, it's <laughs> free. Yes. So I think me. we're down to like zero time at this point. Okay. So for those of you who are listening, I just want to thank you for joining us at Inflection Point Podcast here on Transformation Talk Radio. And as a reminder, we are here every first and third Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific time and 6 p.m. Eastern time. And I hope I see your name on the registration list for the first annual Anti-Racism Activation Summit of 2023. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Inflection Point Podcast, where our mantra is cultivating change from the inside out. The journey towards anti-racism and social change doesn't stop here. Truth, reconciliation, and healing come from ongoing, open, honest, and deliberate conversations. Continue to dive in and deconstruct your thoughts, ideas, and beliefs as we band together to manifest social change. Tune in to Inflection Point Podcast every first and third Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern here on TransformationTalkRadio.com for more conversations about how we can cultivate change from the inside out. Views expressed on this program are those of the host, guests, and callers, and do not necessarily reflect the views of the station, its management, or advertisers. You're listening to Transformation Talk Radio.